1: denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, according to today's guest, David Kessler, there's a sixth stage. David is an expert on healing and loss and author of several books, including On Grief and Grieving, which he co-authored with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. In his new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, he journeys beyond the classic five stages and explains that it's finding meaning that can transform grief into a more peaceful and hopeful experience. David is the author of five best selling books. His first book, The Needs of the Dying, is a number one best selling hospice book that received praise by Mother Teresa. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining us again.
0: Oh, I'm so thrilled to be with you, Joan.
1: So, David, the last time you were here, we talked about the five stages of grief. So, let's begin there. Can you briefly explain each of these five stages to us?
0: Sure. In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler Ross first identified the five stages of dying, that she noticed that people who were dying would go through these. Uh, different areas, patterns, responses they would have to their life ending. And they would, over the years, get casually adopted, sometimes rightfully, wrongfully for grief. And in uh, about 2000, Elizabeth and I started talking about we should really formally adopt them from dying to grief. And that ended up being our book together on grief and grieving. So the stages are denial, the I can't believe this is happening. I just can't believe this is happening, is one of our first responses. And I want to just caution people right up front that when we talk about these stages, Elizabeth never meant for them to be a map of grief or exactly linear or you have to follow them in this way. They're supposed to be very organic. So, but people will notice when they hear the news. Whatever it may be, whether it's a flat tire, a divorce, a loved one dying, we have that sense of, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Please don't let this be real. So the denial actually helps us cope with that news that you couldn't take in the pain of a loved one dying in one day. So denial helps us pace it out. Then we talk about anger as the next stage. We get angry that they've died. And I always tell people... Anger is pain's bodyguard. Underneath that anger is pain and sadness. And then we have bargaining. Bargaining is all the what ifs and regrets. If only I'd called, if only I hadn't called, if only we'd taken them to a different hospital, if only we'd seen another doctor, whatever it may be. And then depression. And when we talk about depression, I just like to point out, we're talking about situational depression. Someone has died and, that's depressing in itself or someone's divorced us and that's depressing in itself. And it's interesting, we don't use the word sadness anymore. So I think when people hear that depression is like a stage, they think of clinical depression where it's really more about sadness. And then the last stage is acceptance. And you know, there's not one big acceptance. It's not like, oh, I found it, it was in the top drawer it's you have to find a little acceptance when you arrange the funeral. You have to find a little more when you go to the funeral. So it's lots of different acceptances over time. So those are the stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance.
1: What's interesting about these stages, David, and and you mentioned it, people tend to think they're linear and then they tend to think, okay, I grieved and I'm done with it. But I know in my own life, I'm nine years out from tremendous loss, and while the loss no longer consumes me every minute of every day, I do find myself still going through these stages. I, I might be in the supermarket, and all of a sudden, I'll start to say, I can't believe that I'm divorced. So it, it they keep replaying, but in, in my experience, it's in a different degree than it was in intensity in the beginning. But I think it's very important to note that it's not a, you know, one and done type of thing. You go through it and now you're healed.
0: Absolutely. And I think the idea of acceptance got misinterpreted that it had a finality that Elizabeth and I never wanted it to to have. There's no, oh, I'm acceptance, I'm done. Exactly like you said. That's not how it works.
1: David, you say that these five stages needed to be updated, and now you write about meaning. Can you tell us about the sixth stage and its significance?
0: Sure. Well, I think that I, I certainly wanted to clear up a lot of the myths that we talked about, the five stages, and that, you know, they're not a map. And the reality is the stages really reflect where we are. We don't follow the stages. You know, it's a very organic process. You know, Elizabeth just would always say would be so she would get asked, what stage is this person? And Elizabeth would go, stop with the stages, just meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. So it's a very organic, fluid thing. But I felt like I had thought about years ago, Victor Frankl's work, and I thought about how what what happens after we accept? Is that it? And I thought we are a generation that I don't think we want to stop at acceptance. I think we want more. And so I had often toyed with this idea of, is there something after acceptance? Is there meaning? And what does meaning look like? And I had just thought about a lot of those concepts and had jotted them down, thinking someday this might be a book. And over time, I would, you know, here and there, write something about meaning that I would find. And then a few years ago, I have two sons and my younger son unexpectedly, tragically died. And when David died, I canceled everything and was obviously just heartbroken and stopped in my tracks. And I took time off, I canceled things. I was sitting in my office one day, just putzing around, just in this deep pain. And I ran across all these papers that I had written about meaning. And I looked at it and I went, yeah, like that's gonna help with this pain. Right. And I started reading and something shifted. The pain didn't go away, but I was adding meaning to it. I was adding a cushion to it. And I thought this is something I want to put together to help people. So that's the new book. And that's and I'll tell you, I was just so honored that the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family and foundation gave me permission to add a stage to her iconic stages so i'm I'm really grateful to them for that. and so i I am teaching people how to find the sixth stage, the stage of meaning, because I think we do want more.
1: well, I before we began this conversation, I had joked with you that this book is the story of my life, but in reality, it is I've lost both of my parents. I've lost my sister, I've lost my brother. I've been divorced. And really, it was in finding meaning from all of those losses that I've been able to heal and move forward and and do the work that I do. I I remember the morning that my father was dying, my parish priest said to me that you have to find the blessing in every situation. And like you, I I remember saying, well, there's a blessing in this, you know, this is horrible, but it really is in trying to figure out the blessing, the meaning, what you can do or how you can transform that pain into something that can make a difference that I, I agree. I think that that's the key To moving forward
0: and something you said is very important that I want to make a distinction for people because some people will say my loved one was murdered like where's the meaning in that Mm -hmm. the meaning doesn't live in the death the meaning is not in the tragedy itself the meaning is what we do after the meaning is what we make out of it so someone you know our loved ones dying or someone divorced it, it may never be meaningful but what we do after because we love them, because we love their life, because they touched us, because they were here. Or maybe there was a tragic death and we wanna make sure no one else dies that way. So we do things to prevent that, but there's a million ways we can make meaning. And like you found organically, I try to let people know we talk so much about post-traumatic stress, but the reality is post-traumatic growth occurs more often. And you were able to sort of do that naturally. And I wanted this book to sort of reinforce for those people who do this naturally and for others who were searching for a way in their pain to add meaning, to find that cushion, to be sort of a beacon for them.
1: I believe it does come down to being a choice. You write pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And I know in my own life, I I came to a fork in the road. I was suicidal. I knew I could go in one direction to a very dark place, or I could go in a different direction and turn all of it around. And for me, it was a conscious decision.
0: And, And it's interesting. And as you saw, that's why I literally made a chapter called The Decision, because there is a place in us that we have to internally, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously make that decision. And I'll tell you, sometimes, and first of all, I just want to reiterate, it doesn't mean the pain's not there. It's not a canceling of the pain. There's no taking your pain away. I mean, you're always going to miss your parents. You're always going to miss your siblings or children. That's just going to naturally be there. But the suffering is what our crazy mind does, and the blame and the blaming of others or self blame or just the turmoil we can live in after a loss that really stops us from feeling the pure grief. And the pure grief is the pure love we had for them that still lives on.
1: David, for someone who is stuck in grief, what's something that that person can do to move forward?
0: Well, the first thing I tell people is you have to start with your feelings.
1: You have
0: to feel your feelings. In a strange way, we're such a productive society. We try to get around the pain or get through the pain. One of the things I wrote about that was so brilliant, I'd never known this, is buffaloes, when they sense a storm is approaching, they don't run from the storm. They run into the storm. And instinctively, they seem to know... That if you run into the storm, you will get through the storm quicker. Whereas if you avoid the storm, you're sort of dealing with it longer. So in a lot of ways, that's symbolic of our pain, that the pain you have, you're going to have to feel. And when you try to avoid it and run from it and stuff it and get around it, it doesn't get dealt with. So it's brutal. There's no way around it. You have to feel your feelings. And people get so afraid there's a gang of feelings or if they stop crying, they'll never be able to stop. But what we find is if you feel your feelings, then you'll feel that feeling fully and then another one will come and then another one will come. And as you begin to feel those feelings, just like you said at the beginning, the intensity will begin to change, the frequency will begin to change. They're not going away completely, but things will begin to shift. And then sometimes people will say, you know, something like, well, I'm dealing with the pain, but I can't go on. There's no really going on. Life's not continuing anymore. And I'll say you are living, but you're not really engaged in life. I mean, I have a thing sometimes I'll say to people when you're home alone, I want you to start noticing your toenails are still growing. Your fingernails are still growing. Your hair is growing. Unfortunately, we get older, it grows in the wrong places, but it's still growing. (laughs) And if life is continuing, it needs your engagement. It needs you to be engaged in it. And instead of shutting down after our loved one died, what if we feel the pain fully whenever it comes up, but continue to live in their honor? continue to live a life that they would feel good about us living. And I think that's one of the keys is making that decision and realizing life is continuing, but for us to be fully alive, it does need our participation.
1: And I think that's where your stage of meaning comes in. I know when I was at my darkest point, I didn't see a future. I didn't know how I would provide for my children. I didn't know how I would move forward by myself and that was in the precise moment and I don't and when I say the precise moment I don't mean it was 10 o'clock on a Tuesday but I mean that was the time of my life where I decided I need to live for my kids so that was my first meaning but then I need to find out how I can take all of this pain and maybe help somebody else so they never feel the way that I did
0: right right exactly And you know the other thing I've learned is helping is healing The more we help the more we heal ourselves. And some people, when they hear that, I'll say to people in their second year of grief, you know, and one of the things I also talk in the book about is busting that one year myth, that myth that like after one year, the grief is over. Right. I wanted people to know that's not true. But to really understand, you know, when you get to your second year, if you can just reach out to someone newly bereaved or you be the one that calls them, that you'll find it becomes healing for you too.
1: David, do you think that social media has had an impact on the way we grieve? Do you think it's taken away the human connection of comfort?
0: It's done two things. It's like everything, it's good and it's bad. On one hand, social media is the new town square. And I love that I can have a Facebook group that if you're awake and alone in the middle of the night and you're grieving, There's someone you can find in Australia to talk to who's wide awake because it's the middle of their day. Mm -hmm. I love that aspect, that it can be our town hall. And if your relatives are not um, wanting to talk anymore about your loved one who died, someone online probably does. That's the good side. It connects us. The downside is it can also disconnect us that... You know, we talk about these days, people die. And what do you see on Facebook or Instagram? Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts right. and prayers. Right. That's it. Thoughts and prayers. Like there's no showing up anymore. There's no coming over. What about the casserole? What about making sure they're fed? What about making sure they're loved? There's just a human element that's missing.
1: For those who have a loved one or a friend who is grieving and does want to have the human connection, we often don't know what to say or do. Is there a general rule for how we should comfort another? Are there things we should avoid saying?
0: Absolutely. So the concept is you want to witness their grief. You don't want to fix it. Number one, they're not broken. They're in grief. So you want to witness it. You want to say things like, I don't know what you're feeling, but I just want you to know I'm here with you. Uh, I want to share a favorite story of your loved one. I want to tell you what they meant to me and engage about them and sit with your friend who's in grief in their pain. What you don't want to do is point out the silver lining. You don't want to compare it with your loss. You don't want to tell them how lucky they are that the person died quick or that they didn't suffer or, you know, we try to tell people the upside. And when you're dealing with loss, there just isn't an upside.
1: David, if you could sum it all up, what would be the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with?
0: I would like them to know that in this lifetime, we get a package deal. We get love. And unfortunately, we get loss. And the reality is when you can find the meaning, you can see so much more. I mean, the reality is my heart just aches for my son who died and for my parents who have died. And I am going to miss them all forever. And I also want to live a life that honors them, that someday if I see them again, and I hope I do, and they say to me, wasn't life great? Wasn't Earth wonderful? Wasn't food great? What did you do after we died? I don't wanna say, well, I shut down because of you. I wanna tell them the amazing things I did because of them. And I wanna find a way to to you know, fully grieve and fully live. And I think the sixth stage can help us do that.
1: The book is Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. If you would like to get more information about David and his work, you can visit grief.com or as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to Pastos On Demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. David, thank you so much for being here and for discussing ways that we can move through and heal from grief. As I said, finding meaning, it helped me. And um, I know that your work will help countless others move forward.
0: Oh, thank you, Joan.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to primohealthsolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best.
2: If you're a person living with any discomfort, have trouble sleeping, or the many other issues that come with getting older, I have great news for you. You have a chance to do something for yourself and at the same time help a U.S. veteran. My name is Janice Coviello. For years, I've been living with knee pain and discomfort every time I did something active, even walking. But after eight knee surgeries, countless bottles of Advil, and hyaluronic acid injections, I was desperate for relief. My doctors told me a knee replacement was my only option. To avoid another surgery, I found another solution. A transdermal gel known for reducing joint pain, faster recovery from injuries, enhancing strength, and promoting natural tissue repair. I started using the gel with amazing results. For the first time in 17 years, I could run without Advil. In addition, I sleep better and have so much more energy. But just don't take my word for it. Go to foreveryoung.org to learn how the purchase of this product can benefit you and also help a US veteran. That's the number 4 everyoung.org Calm, vitality,
3: mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison.
1: productive life. But sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an autism mom coach and founder of Mom's Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's autism hope mindset system empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her spectrum child. Heidi is here today to discuss embracing your role as your autistic child's champion. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So, Heidi, what does it mean to be your autistic child's champion? Well,
4: it means that you have the equivalent of your child's power of attorney acting as his agent, as a stand-in for him, as if you were him, for his highest good, and navigating any obstacles that get in the way of that goal, just as when you were pregnant with him or arranging to adopt him, you become your special child's voice to fight for what is due to him, whether that's from the school district or a local government agency providing services to special needs kids or some other entity where you may have to scramble for a share of limited resources. You are your child's advocate with a capital A on steroids. His personal Olympic gladiator who is representing him and his interests since he can't yet do that for himself. Of course, the ideal is to ultimately teach and prepare your child to be his own advocate to the best of his ability if possible. And the best foundation for him to do that is to witness you modeling what that looks like for him. So being your child's advocate is a huge responsibility and a huge honor. And here's a way to look at this challenge of champions. At some point in eternity, uh, many believe that our souls got together for a chat about appearing together in some lifetime together uh, to discuss the casting and the work terms and to hammer out a soul contract. Your child chose you for this starring role in his life, and you, my dear autism mom, are up for it. And the Lifetime Achievement Award for thriving with an autistic child while getting his needs met goes to
1: fill in your name, champ. What do you believe is the most critical step a parent can take in order to be a successful champion for his or her autistic child? The most critical
4: step is to step into, to embrace your full power as mom. Own it. Be it. Even if... And especially if being seen and heard and noticed is way outside your usual comfort zone, as it is for so many women. How to do this? Love yourself. Forgive yourself for anything that has come before. Trust yourself as the top expert about your special child and your whole family. You are your child's best chance of getting his needs met and you were chosen for this starring role in life. This is your time to be unstoppable. You know, Dr. Benjamin Spock, the famous pediatrician, had a saying that trust yourself. You know more than you think you do. And he would tell that to new parents, but that's really true for all parents. Be the leader of your child's team. Again, no one's gonna know your kid the way you do. Have courage release fear, postpone shyness, use your voice to advocate for your child who cannot do it for himself. Step into Mama Grizzly mode, into Wonder Woman mode. Learn all you possibly can about your child's own condition, situation and needs and prepare yourself to express and advocate around those needs. Educate yourself about the law. Build and surround yourself with your team for support and advice across different areas. Listen to everyone and everything and then apply your own discernment using your own wisdom and intuition to guide your actions. You don't have to abdicate your authority as your child's mom just because you're with people who say that they know better. Be courteous no matter what. Contain your emotions. I know that's a tough one. Choosing when to express your passionate determination that your child receive everything appropriate to him. Be reasonable, be resilient without appeasing or surrendering to the loudest voice. Remember this, you are acting out of love and within that intention, there are no mistakes. Only learning, trust that all will be well because you are determined to make it so and only take actions today that will move you closer to not further from that objective. You will be able to monitor progress and to change course if you need to. So relax a bit. Most decisions are not life and death. And try to laugh when big things appear small and small things appear big. Trust that your child is so blessed to have you. You are awesome.
1: Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Heidi and her work, you can visit momspectrumoasis.com. That's moms with an S. Moms spectrumoasis.com and as always to hear more from Heidi to help you navigate the autism journey, you can visit cyacyl.com slash Heidi. We'll be right back.
3: Do you take care of children, aging parents, or an ill loved one? Is your job in a helping profession? If so, I hope you have the tools to care for yourself. If not, keep listening. Hi, I'm Lori Gardner, Registered Nurse, Patient Advocate, and Board Certified Health and Wellness Coach. I am the CEO and founder of HealthLink Advocates, a firm dedicated to assisting people navigate our very complex healthcare system. We also provide coaching to individuals and groups that want to improve their health and well-being. There can be great joy in being a caregiver, but there can be extreme emotions involved that can cause significant stress in all aspects of your life. Signs of caregiver stress include physical and emotional exhaustion, irritability or anger, trouble sleeping relationship problems, overeating, increased alcohol use, and more. It is important to develop strategies to manage this stress. Even the most resourceful, resilient, and strong person can experience this caregiver stress. Tips to handle this stress include being able to ask for help and create a network of family, friends, and paid professionals. Pay close attention to your physical and emotional well-being. Eat right and try to avoid too much sugar and caffeine. Exercise when you can and do deep breathing regularly. Seek simple, small things for which you can be grateful and practice mindfulness and prayer meditation. Don't forget to put your oxygen mask on first. If you need a health and wellness coach to partner with, please contact us at healthlinkadvocates.com. This is WNYF.
0: New Jersey, New York City.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Running a successful business is challenging for anyone, but just imagine what it's like for a child. When today's guest, Mosiah Bridges, was nine, he appeared on Shark Tank to pitch his business, Moe's Bows. Ever since Mo was introduced to millions of viewers, he's become a pro. Along the way, he's been mentored by Damon John and has even visited with former President Obama. He joins us today to talk about his journey from a kid with an idea to the leader of an internationally recognized brand. Mo was named one of Time Magazine's 30 Most Influential Teens, and Fortunes 18 Under 18. He's the author of the book, Mo's Bows, A Young Person's Guide to Startup Business. Welcome, Isaiah. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, John. So, Mo, I want to talk a little bit about your journey. First, I have to tell you, I am probably one of the millions of people who saw your appearance on Shark Tank. That's one of my favorite shows. So let's talk about your journey. How did you start this business at such a young age?
5: Well, I started the company at such a young age just by, you know, really loving bow ties and really loving the look of them. Uh, But the problem was that I couldn't find any bow ties that fit my personal style. So I asked my grandmother, who had been sewing for over 50 years, to teach me how to sew. And after that, my company took off.
1: At such a young age, you tell your family that you want to start this business. Did they take you seriously? Because I could see... Where many family members might think it was just a childish idea and kind of write it off.
5: Yes, well, my family definitely took me serious uh, just because entrepreneurship was definitely strong in my family with my grandmother owning a company, my grandfather owning a company. Um, so it was really encouraged, and my family was very accepting of that, the idea.
1: So how do you go from having this idea to ending up on Shark Tank? How did that happen?
5: Well, from there, from actually having the idea and solving the problem that I had, I began appearing on shows like the Steve Harvey Morning Show and the Oprah Winfrey Magazine and on Shark Tank. And when I went on Shark Tank, I went on asking for $500,000, $500,000, but I didn't leave with a deal. I think I left for something even more valuable, which was a mentorship with Damon John.
1: What did that appearance do for your company?
5: It really helped my company and helped me establish partnerships with the NBA, with the network ABC, Home Shopping Network, um, and it helped getting me into stores like Mimi and Marcus, partnerships with Kohan as well.
1: Mo, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made along the way? Some of the biggest mistakes are hanging
5: on to uh, regret and hanging on to doubt um, and having self-doubt in general. I think it's very important to believe in yourself, and I talk talk about that a lot in my book. Uh, what believing yourself means and I think that means to invest in yourself so having that letting go of regret and knowing that sometimes you have to consider your losses as um, experiences that you go through as obstacles that you can hop over.
1: What I really love about your story, Maseya, is that you've learned such important lessons at such a young age. Most people your age haven't figured this out. Most people my age haven't figured this out. So I think what you're teaching is so important, especially to teach it to our young people today, to, to really instill that ability to believe in yourself and to understand the importance of that.
5: Thank you. And I think that's something it's very important why I do what I do, especially as motivational speaking goes, speaking to different kids, just letting them know that they can do anything at any age.
1: So, you mentioned that Damon John has mentored you. What has he taught you?
5: He's taught me to believe in myself and to always stay true to my company and to my brand. And that basically means like, no matter how much money someone is offering you, no matter. How what, no matter what anybody is offering you, always stay true to who you are and what you believe and go by your, your own morals.
6: What do you
1: say to anyone who has an idea and a dream? I tell them to find out how they
5: can make money doing it and find out, before I find out how, how you can make money doing it, find out what you like doing, find out how you can help other people by doing it and find out how you can make money and profit by doing that.
1: And what do you say to kids, you know, just to keep them on track, to not allow anyone to say, you're too young, you can't
5: do this? Well, in my book, I talk about my bows of business, B being to believe in yourself, O is the opportunity to give back, W, work hard, and S, support. And those four things are very important and will help anyone um, launch a business or get the confidence to succeed in life.
1: Mo, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work?
5: Well, you can follow me at Mo's Bo's Memphis on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also go to my website at Mo's Bo's Memphis.com.
1: Mo, thank you so much for joining us and for inspiring all of us to believe in ourselves and follow a dream. Thank
7: you so much, John. Love your show.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
7: How important is it for your children to keep both their diet and their weight in check? The answer would be a resounding, highly important. Hello, I'm Dr. Kyle Apicino chiropractor and founder of Health on Maine, located in Little Falls, New Jersey. The facts on this issue are rather frightening as the numbers are stacked against our children. The sheer number of documented overweight children has grown to over 100% in recent decades. This not only means that our children are not only larger, they are also more unhealthy. Evidence shows that if a child is obese, they are 80% more likely to become an adult that is obese. Childhood obesity can more than double the risk of adult-related diseases and even death. Some of these illnesses include Inflammatory arthritis, high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, diabetes, asthma, gout, sleep apnea, and even colorectal cancer. So what can you do? Begin by helping your child take control of their eating habits and dietary choices. Provide cooked foods instead of prepared, packaged microwave meals. Give healthy snacks such as roasted nuts, one ounce of hard cheese, fruits and vegetables. Cut out the soft drinks and instead have them drink water with a dash of lemon or lime. Have regular meal times where your child must sit and eat, which is a healthy habit. Also, help them to avoid missing meals or binge eating, as these are clearly unhealthy dietary practices. Incorporate exercise into their daily routines and limit their screen time, which is a large promoter of a sedentary lifestyle. Remember, these are our children, but they are still kids. So get involved and make it into a fun activity for them. I'm Dr. Kyla Apicino, and our office specializes in helping you achieve real and lasting results through dietary changes. Please give me a call at 973-832-6722 or visit me on health.com.
8: In today's super connected era, we are constantly bombarded with ideas. Some that resonate with what we'd like to do next for ourselves and our businesses. So how do you decide on which idea? And how do you make important decisions? Each decision involves a process, and good decision makers are cognizant of the steps in the process and follow them in a disciplined manner. I'd like to share with you the steps in making great decisions. Start off with goals, long, intermediate, and short range goals. Identify the question, determine symptoms and causes, and put them in writing. Gather information and share the information where others are involved. Evaluate the sources and the validity of the idea. Brainstorm. Imagination testing. Test ideas and theory before putting into practice. After evaluation and prioritizing, select the best option. If you're working with a group, secure commitment on the decision. Implement the decision and take action. If you don't, it's like words on paper never brought into reality accept responsibility for the decision, and then evaluate the decision. Did the process yield the results you wanted? If not, alter or reverse the decision if necessary. To learn more about this, reach out to me, Bertha Robinson, at star
9: Are you the person at work who people call a hypochondriac because you are constantly cringing anytime someone sneezes or coughs? Are you someone who wishes you could stay home until summer to avoid unnecessary germs? Hi, I'm Sarah Outlaw from Natural Health Improvement Centers of South Jersey and Des Moines and Real Food Outlaws. My special tip for you today is how to not have to worry anymore about catching a cold or flu, and that is elderberry syrup. You can find the recipe on my Real Food Outlaws blog, and the main thing that you need is elderberries. All you need to do, which is super easy, is grab some elderberries from your local store or from online like Amazon, put the berries in a pot with some hot water, boil it until the elderberries are soft, strain it, add some honey, cool it down in the fridge, and then take as needed to help prevent the cold and flu. The amazing thing about elderberries is that they are clinically proven to both prevent and shorten the duration of flu symptoms because of the powerful antiviral properties the elderberries have. You can see this information on PubMed and view it very clearly there on how it actually helps keep the viruses from replicating so it's a very powerful medicine right from the earth we love using natural remedies in our homes because they are safe for both ourselves and our children and we hope this little tip can help you and your family stay healthy this winter for more information to get this recipe and other recipes visit my blog realfoodoutlaws.com i hope you enjoyed this tip stay healthy my friends
6: Do you find it challenging to keep a positive frame of mind and well-being in your busy lifestyle? Are there so many things that you are responsible for that you find there is limited time and energy to care for your own well-being? Hi, my name is Laura D'Amato and I'm a certified reflexologist practicing in holistic healing therapy for wellness and mind, body, and soul. What if you were to take some simple steps daily that can improve your own well-being and make you feel more content, happier, and healthier? I specialize in helping people to improve their health by releasing stress, anxiety, and underlying causes of illness. Here are some tips for a recipe for wellness. Begin and end each day in gratitude. Look for the blessing in all your circumstances, even during the challenging times. Add an ample rest to help your body do the work it needs to do, even if that means taking a nap during the day. Feed your body healthy food by eating fresh, non-GMO vegetables and fruits, while limiting processed foods. Drink water and bless and enjoy all that you eat. Add in 10 to 20 minutes a mixture of sunshine, fresh air, and a form of exercise like walking. Sprinkle on much laughter and you will have a recipe for creating your own well-being. This is Aura D'Amato. If you are interested in learning more, please view my website at oradamato.com or you can book a healing session with me by phone or in person at 732-224-8441.
1: you want to help someone who could use a hand Christmas can be the most wonderful time of the year, but it can also be the saddest and the loneliest. While many people experience the joy of the season blessed with abundance, others struggle to put food on the table. Wouldn't it be wonderful to share your blessings with those less fortunate, to let them know that they're loved and not forgotten? Through Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's third annual Feed a Family initiative, you can provide a nourishing festive holiday meal to those in need. Working with local charities, we'll be distributing boxed pre-cooked dinners each meal comes complete with meat vegetables salad sides and dessert it's easy to help out simply visit cya cyl.com holiday meal to learn more or to place your order that's cyacyl.com slash holiday meal Joining us today to discuss co-parenting during the holidays is Rosalind Sadaka, the founder of the child Center Divorce Network. Rosalind is a divorce and co-parenting coach and author of How Do I Tell the Kids About the Divorce, a creative storybook guide to preparing your children with love. Rosalind is an advisor with nothing but advice. Welcome, Rosalind. Thanks for joining us.
10: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be talking with you.
1: So, Rosalind, the holidays are upon us, and this can be a challenging time for families that have been affected by divorce. What advice do you offer to help parents navigate the holidays?
10: Well, it's very important to be attentive and compassionate to your children, especially on an emotional level, because this is a tough time for them. If it's tough for you, it's even tougher for children, and you're becoming the role model for them, giving them permission to have a good time over the holidays, not feel guilty, not feel ashamed or embarrassed that they're not with you, giving them permission to say, I had fun in doing other things with other people that, that you weren't part of. You also want to be very responsible regarding your ex because studies show that children whose divorced parents get along with one another do much better in adapting to the divorce. So you want to be able to talk to your ex about giving your children the happy holiday they deserve in every possible way. And if you can both spend some time together as a family, that's wonderful. If you can't do that, then at least strive to make the drop-off experiences peaceful and harmonious. So you never want to badmouth your ex to the children. You don't want to make your children into messengers between mom and dad or make them into spies between mom and dad because that puts a lot of pressure on children that they certainly don't need and don't do well with. And you want to model your best, most respectful and mature behavior when you're with your ex or in front of their family and especially in front of the children so they have permission to just enjoy their childhood, especially at this important time of the year.
1: How can someone who is used to being with his or her children handle being alone and possibly not seeing the kids?
10: Yes, that's a great question. First, you want to step out of self-focus because if you get into a pity party, you're not going to be helping yourself and you're not going to be helping your children. So if you are alone and the children are not with you, then you have to find alternative behavior. And here are some suggestions that may be helpful for you. You could um, regularly send emails or text messages of the day to your children. So there could be a different theme. Perhaps it's a staying warm tip of the day or the best TV show choice of the day or a movie you saw or a candy bar of the day. Uh, Whatever it is, it's just focused on something you could share with your children regardless of their age. You also can create a journal yourself of holiday activities that you could share with the kids when you see them next, even if it's after the holidays. So that may be a travelogue of places that you've visited on the holidays or new people you've met or movies you saw and activities you participated in. Maybe you could bring home a souvenir from some of the places that you went to and talk about it with the kids, even restaurant menu or postcards or t-shirts, things like that. Also, you want to make plans to do some things that you could talk about, such as sharing a movie that you both saw, and then you could talk on the phone or via text about it the next day and um, discuss the movie together what you liked and didn't like ask questions so you're being creative and you're staying in your your child's life and for those of you who are fortunate enough to have your children it can be very challenging because this may be a change a different reality than the family being together for the holidays so in that case you want to be extremely attentive and compassionate to your children's needs because the holidays are a particularly sensitive time. You're comparing the today with the old days, with what happened last year or years ago. And so you want to remind your children that what they're feeling is okay, it's natural and normal, and be there with them with reassurance and hugs and let them know that some of the activities you're doing will be the same as they used to, but create new Memories, new events and activities so that they can feel the difference and excitement about what you're doing new together. So you could have new traditions that are starting, visiting people that you haven't normally been visiting or places that you haven't been going or trying new recipes that aren't the recipes that you're used to having or taking pictures in a different format or in a different place. That creates new traditions and new beginnings for everyone in the family and it helps them understand that life is. Going on. It's going to continue, and this is going to be a new beginning for everyone in the family together.
1: Rosin, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about nothing but advice, you can visit nothingbutadvice.com. And as always, to hear more about mental health issues, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash nothing but advice. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words, however, I believe the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. And while we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations, and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life, and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So how can you get through a tragedy? recognize that you have a choice in the situation we often believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life we think that we will never recover the key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation no matter how devastating the circumstance you have the power to get through it you are not a victim the choice is yours never suppress your feelings hurt sadness and grief are all normal emotions and they should be felt The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. Get help if you cannot do it by yourself. Read books and seek information that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. And seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and you have a choice. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, When we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com.
3: I want to be riding my bike. But at this moment, he's fighting leukemia.
6: St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is saving lives with pioneering research and care. And we'll never have to pay St. Jude for anything Please take a moment and visit stjude.org
8: today.
1: That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.